This is a very special episode of Defining Moments as I get to interview Paul Shen, who is my uncle. He was a financial services executive who worked at Citibank for 36 years before transitioning into full-time pastoring. And this episode, we discuss the important moments in his life, uh, such as seemingly being miraculously cured of a heart defect at birth, immigrating to America from Japan at just 16 years old, um, getting his MBA, and getting into Citibank, and being switched into a new role mid-career, losing most of his net worth during the 2008 financial crisis, and then having his heart problems resurface as he's retiring, becoming a pastor, and recently being diagnosed with terminal heart failure. In this episode, we're going to, yeah, I get to see behind the scenes of his life. Uh, his life has impacted thousands of people. And in this conversation, we just get to hear more about who he is and things that um, he's learned in this incredible life and the wisdom he has to share with us. So here's that conversation. Thank you so much, Uncle Paul, for, for coming. Um, I am just, you know, I wanted you to come on because I thought that you have had um, a very interesting life and I really respect the choices that you've made mm. um, and um, especially all through all the hardships. And I, um, I wanted to know more about your life. Um, maybe some of the things that, you know, I would, I wouldn't have known otherwise. Mm. And, um, you know, I wanted to give you an opportunity to share with, um, us and the family and the audience, mm -hmm. um, more about the important moments in your life that really defined the trajectory of your life and who you are mm. and became sure so um maybe you could share with us um the defining moments mm -hmm. of your life starting from the very beginning so sure. yeah how how, how okay. does that sound all right well it's great to be here in california and um um i think i represent this unique what i call the 1.5 mm. generation in united states uh, I'm a 1.5 Asian American, but all um, people, actually, you know, all Americans, uh, the ancestors or forefathers were immigrants to this country. And so um, I represent those, probably your parents' generation, mm -hmm. the boomer generation, that was born and raised in Asia or another country, and they mm -hmm. came to America. Uh, for the better life, of course. And so we had the benefit of both our original culture as well as the American Western culture as well. Mm -hmm. Okay, so um, just a little bit of background of uh, my family. I have three older sisters. Mm -hmm. Now, my parents, like most parents, you know, they want a son to carry on the name. So um, after they got three girls in a row, um, they really wanted a boy, so they named my third sister in Chinese Lai Di. In Chinese, Lai Di means come son. And so her English wow. name is Lydia, phonetically. But that name worked. So their fourth um, baby was me, so it worked. Wow. But um, 
the first defining moment is as soon as I was born, the doctor said I had problems with my heart mm. and they will have to operate it on me, do some surgery into my heart as a baby. And so my parents said, no, no, the baby's too small. They don't want that. So mm. my father had some Christian businessmen mm. and they all prayed for me. And miraculously, I was healed of the condition so that I didn't have to go through a, um, the surgery. Mm. So this miracle uh, converted my parents to become Christians. Oh. And so uh, that, I would say, is my first defining moment where um, after I was born, uh, my father yeah. and mother raised us um, in a Christian environment. We went to a yeah. Christian church, Chinese Christian church in mm. Tokyo, Japan. Okay, so you grew up in Tokyo. Yeah. Wow, so how, how did, um, so our, you know, our family is Chinese. How right. did they end up in Tokyo? Uh, sure. So... In 1949, uh, Mao Zedong and the communists took mm -hmm. over the mainland China. And at that time, the president, Chiang Kai-shek, took what they call the nationalist Chinese to Taiwan. Mm -hmm. So my three sisters were all born in Taiwan. Mm -hmm. Then my father moved to Japan for uh, business, import-export business. Mm -hmm. So I was born and raised in Japan. But since we were Chinese, instead of sending them their kids to a Japanese school, they sent us to a... Uh, an mm -hmm. international school. Mm -hmm. It was Catholic schools and because uh, these international Catholic schools are almost like prep schools here mm -hmm. in the United States. It preps you yeah. to come to college in the United States. What was the, um, the breakdown of eth ethnic groups in the, in the Catholic school? Oh, excellent question. Yeah. Um, I went to what's called St. Mary's International School. Uh -huh. There were 100 students and like 50 nations were represented because... Wow. The children of uh, international businessmen, like mm -hmm. expats, they call them, mm -hmm. or um, people who work in the embassy, they would come to our school. And my sisters went to an all-girls Catholic school called Sacred Heart. Mm -hmm. And same thing. like very. That's what they call us the international school. About yeah. all 50 countries are represented. Yeah. So, so you went to an all-boys school. Yeah. It, how did you feel about that growing up? Yeah. Um, no problem. Mm -hmm. Um well, to me, looking back, um, you don't have this boy-girl uh, distractions, right? So I've, I, I didn't mind going to an mm. all-boys school or my sisters going to an all-girls school mm. because, you know, b besides the actual time you're studying, um, there's social activities, dances, and um, different events where it's, it's mixed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I heard, I heard it, could be, it can be really hard to be a foreigner growing up in Japan um, because they're they're like protective of their own, um, I I, uh, I forgot what they call it, but you know. No, no, no. Jap Japan yeah. is known to be a homogeneous country, yeah. and it's very hard to get citizenship there. Absolutely, but having said that, at least in the nineteen sixties and seventies yeah. that we grew up in, um, all Japanese loved everything American, right? Because yeah. Americans pretty much, even though they occupy. Japan, they gave them the new constitution, the democratic principle, the capitalist society. So Japanese all admire, actually admire Americans. They even respect Chinese. They, got, mm -hmm. they took the, the language, kanji, from the mm -hmm. Chinese uh, language. Yeah. So actually, as a foreigner, um, at least when we were there, um, it was no, shall we say, discrimination bias because mm. they respected foreigners. Mm. Of course, having said that, um, 
you know, they still see Japanese as Japanese, and mm-hmm. and they see you as gaijin foreigners. But mm-hmm. but no 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 problems with prejudice or bias. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Okay. So you had mentioned that um, your your parents converted to Christianity. Yeah. They 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 put you guys in Catholic school. Yeah. Because because I think this will tie in to your story later. Right. I wanted to know, you know, how, how, like, how serious were were you? Uh, how genuine was your faith, like, in high school, oh. right? Or because right. going to Catholic school is yeah, yeah, you know, it's yeah, like you, yeah. kinda, you know, it's hard to know. Yeah, like, yeah, do you really yeah, believe yeah. Or, That's right. Yeah. So, um, the requirements of enrolling in these Catholic schools in Japan. Mm didn't require it to be a Catholic, okay? Mm-hmm. So you can be of any faith, you know, very mm-hmm. freedom of religion. The only thing, though, is religion. There's a course called religion that all the students have to go through. But it was good. Mm-hmm. I, I got to understand what the Catholics believe in. You go through catechism. And, and yes, um, I had some Japanese friends yeah. who became or converted to Catholicism. And some of them told me just to get some brownie points with their, our teachers yeah. who were Catholic brothers. But but no problem yeah. at, at all. You, you, they, um, it was freedom of choice and you, you yeah. didn't have to be Catholic. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, y- you had mentioned that, that, uh, that you know, there's – that you're, you're part of this 1.5 generation yes. in – in you know the current generation in America, when we're growing up, they kind of. Um, I feel like the American culture is very much so the yeah. like. What do you want to be when you grow up? Absolutely. What are your yeah, dreams? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Was was that was there that too when you were growing up in Japan, or was the mindset different? Yeah. So what, so what was yeah, your? It's dream? a great question. Yeah. So as you know, um, the Asian Eastern culture. Priority is the the welfare of the whole group. Like mm. in Japan, there's 120 million people living in a very tiny mm. land, island, if you will. So it's important to respect each other, be polite, and mm-hmm. you do everything basically for the benefit of the community mm. or your family first. Whereas, of course, the Western uh, American culture is individualistic to say, mm-hmm. do what's right for you, mm-hmm. achieve your own goals and dreams. So there's the these mm-hmm. two main differences. Um, having said that, um, we were Chinese, overseas Chinese in Japan. Mm-hmm. So like we talked about earlier, I mean, you know, we're not going to really um, be accepted for like influential positions in the Japanese society. So most Chinese or Koreans or Filipinos who are living in Japan, they were send their kids to these international schools so that they can come to America for the American dream, which is to get a great education, to get a job here, and to settle down. So, so in answer to your question, but it, we were like, we saw the best of both worlds in in terms of the cultural, mm-hmm. and we will ourselves pick what is the own cultural value that we want to establish for our, yeah. our own selves and so, family. So you always knew that you were you were kind of destined to go to America. Yes. Yes. Okay. Wow. And yeah. so how, did you get there? How yeah, you- <laughs> great question. So all three of my sisters, they graduated from high school and they came to college in the States and they settled down. In my case, it's this is what I call my second defining moment. In 1972, mm-hmm. that's when President Richard Nixon uh, went to China uh, in a big, big uh, diplomatic move 
to say to the world, we're going to accept Mao Zedong, your communist government, as the politically the representative government of China and no longer um, subscribe to President Chiang Kai-shek's mm -hmm. government, which was based in Taipei, Taiwan. Mm -hmm. So as soon as United States does something, United Nations followed and Japan followed. And so um, in 1972, my passport was Taiwan passport because mm -hmm. we were from the Republic of China. So my parents were afraid that mm -hmm. once the communists come over, they may not let me come to the hated America. So they sent me, um, as soon as the diplomatic changes mm -hmm. happened, within one week, they sent me to the um, United wow. States early. Yeah. So um, I came here for my last year of high school in a Catholic boarding school in Plattsburgh, New York. Wow. I mean, that, that must have been a jarring yeah. experience. You yeah. said that within one week yeah. of that announcement, yeah. already packing your bags, yeah, you've got to get out of here. That's so, right. so what was your, what were you know. feeling at that time? It, yeah. it, that is a great word. It was a jarring experience. I didn't really want to do this because I grew up with my, like, 40 or so friends from first grade all the way to 11th grade. Mm -hmm. All my friends were in Japan, but I knew mm -hmm. if I wanted to reach my goal of coming to the States for a college education, this is what I had to do. So, um, yeah, so I was only 16 at the time. So age 16, I, I, I came to Plattsburgh, New York. It's a city 60 miles south of Montreal, Canada. Uh, small town, and I went to boarding school. So it was tough, right? Mm -hmm. So the, my senior year, right? No proms, no friends. Mm -hmm. I know nothing. So all I can do is study. So the good news is I studied so hard. I got the best um, GPA wow. uh, of my high school career. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah, so you were... Um, so, so were you valedictorian? Yeah, that's a great question. So... Um, I should be. In, in American high yeah. school, whoever has the highest GPA should be the class yeah. valedictorian. Yeah. But the school implied didn't want an outsider to get the most yeah. prestigious honor. Yeah. So the school created this special award called the Award of Excellence. And they gave it to me, Paul, because you had the highest GPA. Okay. But the valedictorian will go to the second yeah. students with the second highest GPA and salutatorian the third because they wanted their own local boys mm. to get that on and not me. So I understood that. But that's when I learned the lesson in life that life is never fair. It was totally unfair, but yeah. that's what life so, is. So, so you were kind of bitter about it. Yes. Uh, so yeah. um, now it is, it is somewhat fair because you only had one year yes. there. So it, yeah. they did have to kind of yeah. play with the... Special circumstance, yeah, yeah. right? That's right. Yeah. That's right. Um, okay, so then, and then did you get into a good college? Yeah, so I ended up going to University of Rochester um, in New York. Mm -hmm. And I majored in economics, got a BA in economics. And right after that, I knew I had to get an MBA. I wanted to get an MBA because that's my personality, very much outgoing, and mm -hmm. I like to manage people. So uh, I only applied to two schools. UCLA and Rutgers. And I've always wanted to live in California, Southern yeah. California. Uh, my uh, third sister, Lydia, did. Yeah. But I didn't get into UCLA, mm -hmm. but I got into Rutgers. So I ended up going to New Jersey for my MBA. Did you, um, did you want to live in L.A. because yeah. you watched, like, American television? And, sure. And so you, you were like, oh, that's so yeah. nice. Like, yeah. 
Is that? Do you think that's the main influence, or the main influence is um, sunny California, the weather. The weather. Okay, so you the knew weather. you knew the weather. I mean, but you. I mean, you were international school in Japan, yeah. so it's mostly through word of mouth and yeah. you know fellow students telling you about how great California is yeah. and things. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Just just checking to yeah. see how like because you know. Yeah. If you're all the way in Japan, it's like, how do you know what's going yeah. on in California? But I, I, yeah. I, I see. Yeah. Um, okay. So after, so so you so you knew you already knew that you wanted to get an MBA. Yeah. But it sounds like you were able to like, did you have to do undergrad and then get an MBA, or was there like a mix? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so you get your bachelor's degree, yeah. and then, um, then you, you straight go for away it. you went to business. Yeah, school. I, I did. Okay. Um, and was it? Was it uh, you had mentioned it was hard to move to America at sixteen? Um, you know, was did call did it start to get better in college, or was it were you still isolated, lonely, no oh, friends? Oh, yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. No, I had a great undergraduate life okay. um, because I was very much involved in extracurricular activities. If you, mm-hmm. are, I was actually the manager of the hip. Um, the varsity basketball team because oh. I love basketball, but I'm not tall enough or good enough to be on that team itself. So I was a manager statistician. So I like that. I was the um, president of the Asian American Student Association. Mm-hmm. I was even in the student senate. So um, oh, my college experience was great because college affords so, so much extracurricular activities, yeah, you know. Nice. Yeah. Okay. So, um, okay. So then you got your MBA. Was there... Is there any significant moments? I know that these might not be like real defining, defining yeah, moments, yeah, but were yeah. there moments in college or maybe during your MBA that were really significant for you? Um, it's a great question. Mm-hmm. So pretty much like most of us, right? In college, you make the best of the independence from parents and mm-hmm. all that uh, life offers, right? So, so I would say... I had fun in college, right? So my GPA wasn't the best. But by the time I went to grad school, it was no social activities, just um, make sure you get good grades and prepare for the career. So my MBA was, I was really focused on Mm -hmm. um, the actual, I I majored in finance. So, I mean, you know, you you mentioned having fun and and a typical undergrad experience is you you get away from the parents, you have fun. and, And from my understanding... Um, one, you were you went to Catholic school growing up, right, right, very strict, right, 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 right very right, disciplined and strict. Right, right. Plus, I think I heard that uh, your mom, our grandma, you know, yeah, my grandma, yeah. she was kind of strict too. No, but maybe not on as much on you. Or how was that growing up? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. Um, her greatest influence on us is how important education is. Mm-hmm. So she was not strict in terms of discipline or curfew or whatever when we were growing up, but she just felt your priority is to get good grades and have a good education. Uh-huh. So, um, so yeah, she always used to quote this uh, adage, right? Um, uh, uh, knowledge is power, right? Mm-hmm. Knowledge, the importance of education, yeah. So um, as long as you got good grades, you could kind of yeah. do whatever you wanted. yeah. yeah. Okay, the same, yeah. that, that's exactly how how my dad raised me. Okay. As long as I got good grades, yeah. I could do whatever the yeah. else I wanted, which I think really came back to bite me as an adult mm. because, um, 
as an adult, there are a lot of things more important than grades. Yeah, you're right. You're right. You're yeah. right. Yeah. You're, you're totally right. Yeah. I mean, for all of us immigrants, we come to America for the opportunities, and we know the best way to do it is to uh, graduate from a good college and get a good education. So that is that trumps everything else. But I totally agree with you. Yeah. Looking back, we parents, immigrant parents, we need to be more balanced. It's not just education. Mm. Um, you're, yeah. you're absolutely right. We need it to be a little bit more balanced in all yeah. of life. Yeah. yeah. And and you had mentioned knowledge is power. And, you know, there's obviously a lot of truth to that. Um, what I came to realize as an adult, though, is that knowledge is not is not everything. Yeah. And I grew up with in in a in the belief that just knowing the right answers was right, right. was everything. Right. Just being smart, and that's what right. everyone valued me for. Right. Um, I think that some of the things that I was missing is like humility, yeah. love, discipline. Yeah. Right. Um, and also right. like knowledge of self. I think that's right, another right. distinct self awareness, knowledge, right? And in yeah. short. Um, emotional. It's not just IQ, but mm-hmm. the emotional quotient. And I think um, the last 20 years, at least in the Western world, they're emphasizing EQ. Even businesses, the corporate world, yeah. are emphasizing there needs to be a balance of EQ and IQ. Yeah. 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 So I'm, I'm learning that now. Mm-hmm. How did you, when did you start to learn that? <laughs> oh, that's a great, great question. <laughs> uh, uh, so um, I was very much... Um, uh, achievement oriented, right? Mm-hmm. And that's what immigrant parents instill in um, their children because you're a minority in America. So distinguish yourself by getting the best grades or achieving everything you want. So I think I probably had that kind of mentality and framework um, even after college, early on in my career. And oh, it's a good question to my next defining moment. I think the defining moment in my career was, oh, by the way, um, I have a 36-year uh, career in banking with Citibank, okay? Mm-hmm. And um, in 1987, uh, Citibank, like almost all major corporations, every five or six years, maybe more often, they're reorganized because the uh, market place situation always changes and the best way to cut costs and get your stock price up is if you consolidate your operation cut staff layoff mm-hmm. staff mm-hmm. right so that happened in 1987 so what happened in 1987 is by that time I was um, age uh, 30 mm-hmm. and um, I was already a vice president at Citibank I was a marketing director of our Retirement products, like indivi- you know, mm-hmm. IRA, individual retirement account. Yeah. Okay. And um, I felt I, I had it made because at age 30, I was I had a good title of vice president. I had a great uh, corner office. You wow. know, that that's one of the most visible perks that you've made it. When you have a wow. corner window office and it, it was on West 33rd Street in Manhattan, it overlooked the Hudson River, almost like your view here yeah. of the uh, San Francisco Bay. I had my own personal secretary that did all the typing mm-hmm. and everything, and I had a staff of six people. And because of this organization, or reorganization, they said, your job is going away. But good news, we'll give you another job. And they assigned to me 
uh, a new job of investment product development manager. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I was no longer, I had nobody reporting to me, no secretary, and they just gave me a cube. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, uh, now that I see your office here, you don't even have walls to separate no, that's yourself. The, that's the modern open tech space. culture. Uh, open, open space. Culture, yeah. So I only got a cube. So like in anything in life, when something uncontrollable happens to you, you either choose to make the most of your new situation, have mm-hmm. a good attitude about it, or you can complain, yeah. sulk, and withdraw yourself, right? So I decided, okay, I'll, I'll make the most use of this time. So it turned out really well because I learned how to – do a word processor and to work with the laptop computer for the first time. I learned Excel. I learned PowerPoint. PowerPoint and Excel were all skills that I really needed to know myself for my future career assignments. So um, um, then t- to answer your question, I find that oh, after one year of this, I said, I'm so glad what happened because if I was in the old job, I'm relying on my secretary or my direct reports to do stuff for me. Mm-hmm. But in this new world, like, I needed to know, know all these computer skills, mm. um, PowerPoint, except I needed, in this day and age, you need these skills in this tech world. Yeah. So I look yeah. back and I say, oh, this was good. So yeah. And then, you, and then you became a pastor too, know, eventually, right? So you needed those skills. So that's yeah. when I, I, uh, I learned that uh, the world changes. The values and what you think is prestigious or important, it really changes. And you need to from time to time, step back and reflect and see yeah. where you are, where you where you want to go, what are your skills, and what kind of skills do you need to get there. And it's only when crisis or uncontrollable events mm-hmm. happen to you, then that's when you, you get a chance to do that mm-hmm. realistically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. You know, my mom, I think my mom, t- I was in Florida with, with, with my mom like yeah. a few months ago. Yeah. Um, I think she told me that the story yeah. about how you got that Citibank job was really interesting. Oh, it is. It is. <laughs> it is. Okay. So, um, you know, you know, earlier, I know you were pressing me. Um, after you got your bachelor's degree in college, I think it's good for people to try to get a job before going straight to school. But I was what's considered an international student. Mm. So, international students are only allowed to have one year of practical training, you know, the visa, if you will, to stay. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So I had to go to um, business school, my MBA, to be more marketable okay. um, yeah. to get a job. So after I got uh, my MBA, I interviewed, you know, I, it was basically my schools in New York City, really. So all the big uh, companies like IBM, Xerox, Chase, Citibank will come to campus to interview. Yeah. So I went to the interview. And when Citibank came, yeah. right, instead of um, – right nowadays, most companies will send an HR person to do the initial screening yeah. interview. Yeah. And, you know, if you were to uh, interview 12 to 15 people, they'll probably invite two or three back to the company headquarters for the real set of interviews. Mm-hmm. In this case, Citibank sent the vice president of the operation who needed the jobs and wow. two other managers mm-hmm. to do the interviews. Wow. So they liked me so much that I had to interview with all three people on that same day. Yeah. And the next morning, I get a call to say, we'd like to offer you the job. And Dang. I was so delighted. Dang. And I, I really liked Citibank, so I accepted it. So then a month later, when I went to my first day of processing with HR, they said, what is this? You're not an American citizen. You don't even have a PR green card. We're not allowed to give jobs to people who don't have a uh, green card of citizenship. Yeah. So um, I, 
So that was a scary moment. It was a scary moment. I was yeah. praying as they went to consult uh, the senior HR officers, and they told me go home, and we'll, we'll find out. The next morning, they said we weren't supposed to offer your job because you don't have a PR or citizenship. But now, now that we <laughs> gave you a written offer, yeah, we're not going to renege on that. So Citibank hired. A immigration lawyer on my wow. behalf to apply for a special H-1 visa yeah. to get a professional work visa to let me work. So, yeah, that was a miracle. That was a miracle because I wasn't yeah. supposed to get a job, but the way it turned out, I yeah. ended up getting a job. So you, so you probably were one of the first yeah. like immigrants without uh, document like uh, H-1 to get hired at Citibank. Right, right, right. Wow, right, which right. is that's kind of amazing. Yeah. yeah. Um, Oh, what was I going to say? I was going to say that, oh, I was going to ask, you know, you said that the, the the VP and the managers really liked you. What do you think it was about you that made them like oh, you? Oh, excellent question. So in my first five years of working in city, first six years actually of working city, man, I got four promotion from management associate to assistant manager, manager, assistant vice president, vice president. And I kept on saying to myself, um, I never asked for these promotions or like, I, yeah. Why? And then I found out because during these same six years in my church, I was the volunteer uh, junior high school, Sunday school teacher. I was a youth director and I figured it out. When you have to teach Sunday school, Mm -hmm. right? And Sunday school is not like teaching English or mathematics. When you teach um, spiritual lessons, you're talking about – Behavior modification, if you will. Mm-hmm. So you have to be a real good communicator. You have to be mm-hmm. a very good persuader yeah. to to be able to teach rowdy middle school kids to be engaged and to convince them that what the Bible teaches is true and you should apply it to your life. So then I figured out because of my um, church yeah. experience, yeah. I developed the communication skills mm. to make not only presentations, to be persuasive. And as you may know, in America, in corporate America, um, whether you have a marketing degree or, or finance degree or a tech information system degree, if you want to go up in management, you have to be a good communicator. Mm. So now I found out that the reason why they kept them um, promoting me in my mm. job is because I was a good communicator, which oh. I developed the skills in church. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Amazing. Like, you know, actually, as you share this, yeah. it kind of reminds me... Uh-huh. Of John, yes, he like says it himself. Yeah. He says it himself. He he would say, by the way, John is my oldest son. And he doesn't have the best grades, but he took after me. Like his, he's very good in relationship skills. Yeah, he's so really he good. works with Mondelez and he is in a high senior management position. And it's only because of his communication presentation <laughs> skills. <laughs> yeah, and and the same story though. He he got promoted way faster yeah, than yeah. the average person yeah. would have. It's yeah. it's remarkable. So yeah. I think we we do learn a lot from our our, yeah, parent, yeah. our parents. Um, yeah. Some yeah. So, um, and okay, I mean, this is amazing. You said you spent 32 years at Citibank? 36, actually. 36 yeah. years? Dude, it's such, you know, you talk about generation yeah. difference. It's so different. Yeah. Because especially here in the Bay and tech, gosh, part of its personality, but yeah. <laughs> I switch jobs I like once a year. I know. I know. No, 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 Daniel. It's it's a different corporate <laughs> workplace environment. So in my generation, which is from the 60s, 70s to the 80s, 
uh, we were taught that get a job with one of the Fortune 500 companies and just stay with them and they'll take care of you. Yeah. They give you a good pension and all that. So that that was what we were all raised to uh, believe. But I think the uh, the advent of the information age, the computers and technology yeah. changed things. So now these big companies are the first to always reorganize and cut staff and they have no loyalty to you. So, yeah. so in, I grew up with, and I think also with your dad who actually yeah. worked for us. And we'd have no loyalty to the companies. Either. Right, right, That's right, about right, us right, and right. our vision. Right? It changed. Yeah. We thought it's best to be loyal to the company and they'll take care of it. But now the company mm-hmm. has no loyalty. So now yeah. the young people are smart. Like, um, get what skill set, knowledge, and uh, experiences, yeah. Yeah. and then move on to another company. And that's usually the only way you can get a salary jump when you yeah. switch companies. Well, so it's different yeah. between your generation yeah. and my generation. Well, yeah, and the other generational difference is that our society is becoming more and more transactional. Yeah. And so it's yeah. not about the values of, yeah. of loyalty that's right. and um, honor. Yeah. It's more about... Is this relationship yeah. profitable? Yeah. And you know, how do you yeah. maximize the the True. the economic output? True. And you see that even coming into like uh, the dating relationships too. You know, it's true. like true, true. It's not so much about loyalty, but it's like, are we really compatible? Are we gonna like have? Yeah. Are we gonna help each other achieve our vision? Yeah, true, true. Um, but you know, I think yeah. that ties into another philosophical discussion yeah. with, that we won't go into. Yeah. The the thing that I want to ask you was yeah. is was was two thousand eight a defining moment for you? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, two thousand eight is when um, the stock market. I wouldn't say it crashed, but it probably lost over um, over close to fifty percent in value. It was also um, when uh, the investment market really. Um, you know, it started with Bear Stearns and um, many of the brokerage firms went bankrupt. The banks, the biggest banks, um, we had to be bailed out by the government. Um, this is 2008, the year that President Barack Obama was uh, uh, elected. Um, he had to give the big banks yeah. $67 billion in a bailout money yeah, yeah. Uh, to rescue the banks. So that was a, a tough, tough year financially for all. Um, but especially in, you in the United States, yeah. yeah so most of your most of your net worth is tied up in city oh, in city oh, stock, oh, right? Oh, you know about that. So uh, you know about that. Okay, if you were to ask him, what is the biggest regret you have? The one biggest request is, um, um, I own city stock. Yeah. And, you know, when you're in management, um, big corporations, they reward your performance with stock options. Yeah. So every time, every year I had a good year, I would buy and exercise Citibank stock because yeah. you get it at a much Discount, cheaper rate. Yeah. And I just kept accumulating it. So I think it's okay. In that 2008, I had 2,000 shares of Citibank stock worth $50. So that's a million dollars, really, a yeah, yeah. million dollars. But then because of this uh, financial crisis, the stock went down from 50 to 40 to 30. And when it started to go lower than 30, I started to worry. But then you see in in mid-1980s, I was working for Citibank when our stock went from 33 down to $2. This is um, during the 1980s. There was a Latin American uh, debt crisis. Uh-huh. And our stock went down too. And at that time, the president of CEO of City was John Reed. 
But then they, the, the banks came up with a rescue strategy. And then within one year, the Citibank start that went down to $2, within one year, it went back up to 33 and even higher. That's insane. Right. So my problem um, is, and I think this is probably for everybody, is you kind of remember what happened in the past. Mm-hmm. So I felt, well, when the stock goes down to 25, 20, don't sell because if you yeah. sell the stock yeah. that was worth 50 to 20, then that's when you're going to realize the loss. Yeah, yeah. But if you don't sell yeah. it and you just keep it, yeah. wait till it goes back up, then everything's okay. Yeah. So that was my biggest regret because it never did. The never Citibank did. stock went down from 50 to $1, oh which was just a million dollars went down to just $2,000. <laughs> and, 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 and of course, I didn't sell because yeah. then I didn't want to lose that much money. But now, um, even though the city stock yeah. is back up to the mid forties, they did a ten for one reverse stock split. So, so it's not really; it, it's four dollars. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. So, so that, so what does this mean? I mean, yeah. what this means is life changes. Almost everything in life changes. So, um, my generation, mm-hmm. besides the uh, philosophy of working for a good company for life, the other thing was investment strategy was. Buy blue chip stocks mm-hmm. and hold. Buy and hold. Yeah. Because blue chip stocks like IBM or Xerox or Kodak yeah. will never go out of business. And of course, Xerox and Kodak already uh, went out of business. <laughs> so, so see that that was my biggest lesson learned. Sometimes things change, things and change, an investment yeah. strategy that worked in the past would not yeah. necessarily mean it still works. No, the, yeah, the world's changed a lot. I mean, it, which this generation because the culture changes and. If you look at this generation, it's crazy. Like, have you heard of the meme stocks? Have you heard of meme stocks? No, no, no. So, so what's happened is that, um, so, so what memes are is memes are like um, things that get repeated as kind of like jokes on the internet. Right, I know what memes yeah. are, yeah. And so what happened was that what caught on in our culture, in my generation, is that Communities would buy stocks completely independent of the value of oh, the stocks. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. so they sent like yeah. these stocks like GameStop. Game, GameStop, they did that. Um, yeah. Robinhood might have been part of it. Uh, what else? They had um, like Bed Bath and Beyond. Yeah. Uh, dude, I you know I wasn't really that much part of it, so I don't remember all of them. But the point is that. A lot of the people in my generation wanted to screw over the big finance yes, people yes, of yes, your generation. Yes, yes, yes. And we said, yes. like, yes. F Wall Street. Yes, yes, yes. And so all these people had shorts yes. on these, like, really failing companies. Yes. And they just short squeezed the hell out yeah. of them. Yeah. And, like, things like GameStop went from, like, $4 yeah. to, like, 200 Yeah. Just to screw yeah. over the, yeah. the, the big, the big man. It worked for a while. And it worked yeah. for a while. Yeah. Obviously, everything's going to return right. mostly back down to the fair market value. But the point is that things change is that you, you can't continue to rely on the same patterns across the decades. That's right. Um, And with technology moving so fast, the time that it takes for generations to change is shortening. Absolutely. True. 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 Yeah. True. So, um, well, you know, not, you know, you, you had mentioned that, wow, like you, you lost, most of your net worth mm-hmm. in 2008 and and mm-hmm. i mean that's you know sorry that you had to go yeah. through that but but how did that change you as a person oh yeah. 
Excellent question. Yeah, my uh, my sense of security was always um, for people who work for yeah. corporation with four hundred and one k. You get your quarterly four hundred and one k statement, and you look at oh, yeah. the market's doing well. The uh, yeah. my four hundred and one k is doing well. That really gives you a sense of security, really. Yeah. And um, it's an excellent question. So yeah, because I want to know how about you. You know, I oh yeah, know yeah, you. yeah, yeah. You're right. Yeah. You're right. So I felt, hey, don't place your security on money. Um, yeah. And what you own here. Yeah. So it caused me to really re-examine what's really important in life. Mm -hmm. And it's really relationships. Um, The relationship you have with your spouse, if you're married, with your children, or with your parents. That's most important because uh, Mark can go up and down. uh, Almost every physical asset you have can... Get um, devalued yeah. or depreciated, so um, it, it caused me to not worry so much about my four hundred and one k or retirement plan, and just oh, in my case, of course, it's the trust in God and and focus on building good relationships um, mm-hmm. that you that with the people you care yeah. for. And but think, yeah. yeah, yeah, I think that's so true. Yeah, um, but but that's easier said than okay. done. Okay. And and what I mean by that is okay. like you know to lose that much of your money and security, um, like, well, there's two things. One is that it does affect your relationships, right? Because even within marriage, it's like, you know, the stress of that financial stress is going to cause strain on on the marriage and cause those negative emotions. And I think that what I've seen as as a Christian in, in the church and being a Christian myself is that we can over-spiritualize our tragedies okay. and, like, brush them off by saying, like, you know what, like, um, oh, you know what, like, uh, you know, I should be storing treasures in heaven anyway or, like, relationships are the most important and it's just money as a way to cope with the right, grief right, right, without right. actually processing the grief of that. Right, so right. Do, do you think that um, that you that you um, – didn't take time to process that, you know, that, that really, that crisis and how did that affect, you know, your relationships and your mental, mental health at, at that time? All right. Um, of course, we all have a coping mechanism. Mm-hmm. And the first thing I said is, okay, um, out of the million dollars in Lost Valley, actually half um, was actually what I paid into in buying the stock based on my bonuses. Mm-hmm. And the other half was um, just appreciated value. Okay. So, so looking back, it was a key lesson learned. In hindsight, if the similar thing happens, I should have sold that twenty five, which was the which was a cost of what I paid for average. It's cost hard of what to know, I though. You never know. You never know because it okay, can bounce okay, back okay, up, okay. and then okay. you regret that right, that right, way. Right? right. So, yeah. My first coping mechanism. Okay, it's not. I really lost half a million dollars, not a million dollars. No, no, it, it doesn't feel like that, though. I, like, I, I know okay. the psychology. Once you hit that million, you feel like it's yours. <laughs> and right. it all feels like all loss. Right. All right. So, but no, I value lessons learned, right? Mm-hmm. That, that's how you're learning in life. So, of course, from that point out, I never ever bought Citibank stock again. <laughs> so, I'm, I, I make sure I'm more in diversified funds. So, that's number one. And number two is, um, but, yeah. but all my investments wasn't, in city stocks, so, yeah. so, uh, I'm glad that uh, we still had enough to uh, fund 
our three children's college yeah. education, yeah. if you will. Yeah. So, so that was good. Of course, what it what it meant was that um, um, you didn't have the safe cushion for your retirement or to go yeah. on vaca- nice vacations, whatever, right? Yeah. But at least I was very fortunate because still I was diversified enough so that. The most important goal is to fund a children's education. Yeah. That was in effect. Okay. So that was so that was fun. Yeah. So, so I was very fortunate yeah. from that. So point your faith did buffer you from that. That because I mean that would be crushing for most people. Your faith oh, buffered yeah, you yeah, and protected yeah, you from that kind of really becoming depressing and. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, and then I mean you know you said that that. So then, did it mess up your retirement plans? What what happened after that? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So of course, it's it's less, but then you built up again. But um, but but you're absolutely right when you said about the faith because I knew money's not the most important thing. So okay. it it it, it buffered me. It's true. I could have very easily gotten depressed, right? Yeah. Which um, I had in previous years, but now it was okay. It was the it was the support of my family and. Mm. Um, other friends, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so you said you worked at Citibank for yeah. for 36 Six years. Six years, yeah. Wow, it's like, well, I think the one thing that shows about you is that you're you're a loyal person. I am you, a loyal you value person. You loyalty. I am, I am. <laughs> um, and, and so then how did... Um, you know, did you did you just end up retiring and... and yeah, 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 yeah. So, um... Um... During the 36-year career, there were opportunities to go work for Chase uh-huh. or whatever, and uh-huh. and, peop- and and people, especially even my wife or my friends, would say, why don't you go work for Chase? Um, better offer, better promotion, right? Yeah. And I said, I can't. They're my com- competition. I have to say hello to Citibank. But now you know why. It's because Citibank bailed me out, right? They gave me my first job mm. even when I didn't have the visa to get it. Yeah. So that that that's a history. You felt indebted to them. I do. You felt indebted to them and, and you held I on do. to that. And there's a spiritual analogy too, right? Unless yeah. Christians really understand the debt that Jesus Christ paid for you, yeah. Then you won't value that relationship. But only when you realize how much in debt you are, then you are yeah. totally faithful. So you're right. That 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 explains why I never jump ship, if you will. But having said that, out of the 36 years I worked for Citibank, I have 15 different types of job, like financial mm-hmm. analyst, uh, operations mm-hmm. manager, branch manager, investment product manager. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't as if I was bored. Like within this one corporation, mm-hmm. I had different types of jobs. So uh-huh. yeah. And so during during the time that you were working yeah. at Citibank, um, you, you you got married. You had yeah, kids. I did. I did. So yeah. how, how did that how did that happen? Um, yeah. No, everything worked out really. Oh yeah. Th- the biggest challenge was, which is the one thing I envy about your generation. Um, I live in New Jersey, suburban re- New Jersey, yeah. and my commute to come into work was two hours. One way. So every day I would commute four hours a day, times about five, 20 hours a week. That's a lot of time spent yeah. on just commuting. Yeah. So um, so in answer to your question, because of the nature of where we lived in my job, um, during the Monday through Fridays, the commuting yeah. took so much out of me. Yeah. And on weekends, um, um, I needed like Saturdays to do chores and recuperate and yeah. Sundays yeah. in ministry. So um, so that really affected me. And that's why I'm so envious yeah. of the current uh, 
one of the benefits of COVID was the, work. you're all allowed to work from home. That 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 is a tremendous advantage yeah. that your generation has right now mm-hmm. to be able to work from home and not to spend so much time in commuting. Yeah. yeah. So how did you how did you juggle that? Like like working full time, twenty hours of yeah, commute yeah. and family yeah, yeah. and yeah, church yeah. what was that like yeah yeah so of course nobody is a uh, superhuman you can't do everything we only have 168 hours in a week so what i did was monday through friday it was pretty much work and um commuting time yeah. then on the weekends um and this is definitely my mistake um i were i prioritized uh, ministry mm-hmm. you know before i became a pastor i was mm-hmm. very much involved as a lay leader in the church mm-hmm. um in hindsight i should have prioritized more time spent helping out my wife mm-hmm. um and raising my three kids mm-hmm. while they were young again see again i had this older mentality the older mentality was um wives are best to take care of toddlers and when they're young grade school mm-hmm. And then I will become more involved as a father once our kids are in middle mm-hmm. school and high school age. So that that was my mistake. I, yeah. I wish I had prioritized spending time with yeah. my kids yeah. when they were in grade school more than waiting until they're in middle school. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that, that makes sense. Um, at the same time, I feel like it's so tough because – like you said, we only have 168 right. hours. Right. And it's like, well, if you prioritize yeah. your family, then there wouldn't have been time for ministry, right? Yeah, yeah. And so we all have to make yeah. that choice. Yeah. And I'm just I'm just so glad that, you know, that that uh, John, Chris, and Amanda, yeah. they turned out so great. Yeah, yeah. praise God. Yeah, praise God. God. Um, yeah. But even, the, you know, what you're saying is true yeah. now. You So you devoted a lot of your life to the church. Yes, I did. Um what what made you do that? Sure, How sure. did you do that for so long? And what sure, made you do that? sure, yeah. sure. Um, really, it's the all Thanksgiving goes to my wife because my wife is an excellent mother, and that's why mm-hmm. the reason why the, our three children turned out well is because a, a largely she is a great great parent. So that's number one. Mm-hmm. Number two is. Um, Everybody needs to understand what your calling or your mission in life is, right? And so for Christians, it's really to um, use the gifts or talents God given you to serve him, right? So I really felt that I had the gifts um, to serve in ministry. So that's what mm-hmm. I did. But you know what? Um, even when I was mid-25, early 30s, I've always asked God, do you want me to go to seminary to become a pastor? And the answer was no, Um Mm-hmm. No, just stay where you are, and you don't have to be in full-time ministry to serve him. And looking back, now I know why. It's because um, every church needs strong lay leaders, if you will, mm-hmm. right, marketplace leaders. So um, so now I know why. And um, But actually, in 1980, I'm sorry, um, when when my wife and I became empty ministers, oh, in 2014, that's when our youngest, Amanda, went to college. Mm-hmm. We were praying to say, God, what do you want us to do? Mm-hmm. And that's when he, he said, okay, there, there's an open youth pastor position in church. Mm-hmm. I prayed about it. We prayed about it. And God said, I want you to take that. Mm-hmm. So God mm-hmm. only gave me the green light to become a pastor late in my career. So... Late, after the 36 years of working yeah. with Citibank, I, I 
I went into full-time ministry as a pastor, mm -hmm. and I also went to seminary school mm -hmm. um, at age 50. You make a living by what you earn or what you get, right? Mm. Right? All of us, okay, yeah. we need a job, career to make, pay for our daily expenses. But he said, but you make a life by what you give. So that, that was a key philosophical mm. uh, concept that made me switch. Because mm. when we became empty nesters, like many Everybody else in your audience who are empty nesters, you've done your job, you've raised your children, and if they went to college, you put them through college. So that aspect mm -hmm. of parenting is over with. So now what do you want to do with your life? So I felt, well, um, it's now time to give back. So that's why I, mm -hmm. I, I wanted to serve as a pastor to more yeah. directly. Uh, that there was youth pastor yeah. position to give yeah. back um, to young people uh, to raise them. And and uh, getting Christian instructions, so that was a key philosophical change. But I know you, you, your your question was what, did, uh, what was unexpected. Yeah, yeah. Okay, it. here yeah. it is. The hardest thing for me was thirty five out of the thirty six years I worked for Citibank. Mm -hmm. I was always a manager. I was always in charge of people. Oh. I ordered people what to do. And since you had the benefit of performance appraisal raises, you can hire and yeah. fire people. They have to listen to you. But when you become a pastor, you don't have the authority. Everybody in your church is your boss. They tell you, I like that sermon. I didn't like the sermon. Why are you doing this? Now? So the biggest and hardest lesson oh, learned was humility. Because mm -hmm. as a pastor, I you can't leverage your title or authority mm -hmm. to make people do it. I mean, they're all volunteers. I, you know, So uh, that was the hardest thing to do. That mm -hmm. um, you. As a pastor, you're really the humble servant of everybody else in your church. Yeah. Pastors have a tough job. They do have you, a tough you, job. You have to be really resilient because yeah. it's hard to separate the criticisms people are giving you mm. from criticisms about who you are as a person. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you know what's really funny? Um, um, in the 80s when I was a deacon at church, I felt, you know, being for the corporate world, we need to do annual ministry service and we need to ask our people, how do you like the sermons? How do you like the worship service? How do you like uh, our lunch program? Mm -hmm. But the pastor then were vehemently against that because who wants to have a performance appraisal where the 200 people in the church yeah. gets to grade you, right? So they yeah. were against it. But I came from the corporate side that says, mm -hmm. yeah. in order to improve yeah. our, shall we say, product of yeah. um, church services, we need to get yeah. feedback. Yeah. And you hit it right on the dot. It was only when we designed the survey to take away comments, the evaluation of the pastor as a person. Mm -hmm. Like we're not gauging how spiritual you are. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but we're just asking for what you thought about the Sunday worship experience and mm -hmm. how we can improve. Mm -hmm. So that was a breakthrough. So you're absolutely right. Uh, if you try to do... Ask for any feedback yeah. in ministry. Yeah. 
you have to distinguish the difference between the actual yeah. ministry or the event versus the the pastor or the person in charge. You, yeah. you hit you hit it right on the dot. Yeah, yeah. And, and I mean it is it is difficult yeah. though because um, I I think that that I think the church can learn from the corporate world. Yes, I think the feedback is important. Yes, but um, what's hard is that you know you you should be asking about how people are liking your sermons. Yes, but you know. Nobody likes to hear that they, their sermons yeah. suck Bored, or boring right. or whatever, and and um, and you know, and it's so competitive. The church world is so competitive now. It, yeah. It's like it the is. corporate world. It's, it is. It's, it's competitive. It is. But you know, I think that to be a, a good leader in church, we have to be emotionally healthy and secure yeah. in ourselves, so that when we read True. that people don't like our sermons, they don't like our leadership True. style, that we don't take it personally. True. And unfortunately too many leaders in church haven't built that ego strength. True, true. And so true, then true. they're not ready to take that true, feedback. True, true, um, And that's true. a whole other conversation yeah. for another day. But I guess true. maybe really quickly we could sure. we could touch on sure. how did you build that inner strength of like, oh, this is who I am. And I'm gonna, I, like, even though these people oh, yeah, are, are going to say excellent. this, I'm going to let it go. How, excellent. How you you yeah. really need a, a good support network. Mm-hmm. So... Um, and so for pastors, the hardest thing is, you know, the people in church, or in my case, I had people in the church who were my good friends. Mm-hmm. But once I became a pastor, it's a different relationship. So for a pastor, you cannot really be 100% vulnerable and share all your problems or shortcomings with anybody in the church because mm-hmm. yeah. uh, either it will get out or it's bad. So every pastor needs another at least one, two, three um, other pastors who understands what you're going through, mm-hmm. but yet um, it's not going to affect yeah. your ministry right then. So I've ever said what I did. I have my three former pastors who I'm a position before. One is in Texas. One is uh, two of them is Texas. One mm-hmm. is in Syracuse, upstate. I will consult with them and I will share with them. And locally, um, I also have a network of other pastors that we get together once every two months for time of sharing and prayer. But still, again, <laughs> it could be competitive too because the, the like in our church, there's a Chinese American church, you know. You, so, so um, to answer your question, uh, I I managed through the tough times through the support network of uh, former pastors who understands the position I am and who I can truly be myself and be vulnerable to them. Mm. So, so, yeah. so that was, and then and then let me tell you the other group group. That I have my three sisters uh, because they're family, yeah. right? And 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 like it's so interesting because when I was uh, a pastor, yeah, in my early stages, I I would have my own children and my sisters uh, listen to my sermon or read my uh-huh. sermon script and give me comment. Uh-huh. My children in the beginning. Will give me the pros and cons, right? Okay, okay. But my sisters always only give me the positive. They never ever oh, criticized wow. anything, and that was so helpful because yeah. I, you need somebody to encourage yeah. you and re- affirm you, right? Yeah, yeah. And my sisters, who really could have given me constructive criticism, they just gave me nothing but love and oh. praise and compliments. So my three sisters really helped me. <laughs> 
<laughs> I'm so glad you shared that. Yeah, we all, we, yeah, we need the encouragement. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's hard to keep going. And yeah. so, wow, that's, that's, thanks for sharing that. I, um, I love, we all love the, the, the relationship that you and, yeah. you and, you know, my siblings, your siblings yeah, have. yeah, yeah. Um, it's, it's very yeah. heartwarming. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, ha- I have to ask about, um, your, your recent diagnosis. Oh, yes, 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 yes. What, yeah. what happened? How have you been, yeah, yeah. How have you been doing that? Yeah, thanks. That, yeah. So um, last year, exactly one year ago, uh-huh. um, my wife and I decided that 2023 will be my last year as a pastor, a full-time pastor, because um, the whole world needs to change. Oh, it's... Like so, basically, we thought like I, I should step down as a full time pastor because I really felt that my church needs a younger pastor. Like mm-hmm. I'm boomer generation, mm-hmm. I felt we need a pastor, a millennial, mm-hmm. to be able to truly understand and build rapport with the millennials and the iGen generation. So that's the first thing we decided. Okay, and but everybody can understand that because that's the current political thing, right? Everybody thinks the top Republican um, person is Donald Trump, who's Old and President Biden is very old, and, and and I definitely agree. Whether it's in politics, in the church, in in a corporation, yeah, the old timers need to start to step aside to make room for the younger generation. Absolutely. Yeah. So what's really interesting is after my wife and I made this decision last year in March of this year, all of a sudden my heart took a bad turn. Yeah. To suffice it to say. Um, um, I have what's called cardiomyopathy, where my heart muscles is too weak to pump blood efficiently. So I started to feel the symptoms of um, really being tired, shortness of breath. And when I went to see a doctor, um, uh, I actually had to be hospitalized in July. And basically, they said, Mr. Shen, um, you're in your end stage of congestive heart failure, where they told me, unless you get a heart transplant, you're not going to survive a year. So I, I got the shot. Well, the good news is I was already planning to retire anyway. So I just sped up my retirement by three months to focus on my health. So, But it was a big shock to say mm-hmm. that I need a heart transplant. But then it's so ironic, Daniel, because I came into this world where the doctor said I needed a mm-hmm. heart surgery. And in my last stage of my life, the doctor is saying again, you need another heart surgery. You need it. Transplant, so it's kind of really wow. ironic, but um, but um, it's tough. But um, I'm very grateful that God gave me, you know, actually 67 years of a good life to be to serve Him. So, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, you know, um, I'm 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 really glad that that you know we're here having this conversation. Um, is there does it does it feel different to like to know that you're, you know, you're, you're in, you know, if you don't yeah. get the heart transplant yeah, yeah. in the end stages, like what, what, yeah, what yeah, goes yeah. through your mind in a, in every day, you know? Excellent question. So, um, you know, in all these years, not only as a pastor, but as a youth director, I used to, a couple of years, give a workshop on being prepared. Mm-hmm. And it's an exercise that I would give my youth, which mm-hmm. says, if you were told by your doctor yeah. that you have a terminal cancer or terminal I- illness and you only have one year to yeah. live, yeah. would that make a difference? How, how would you change your life, right? Yeah. It's, it's a nice exercise to yeah. go through. And, but, you know, for young people, it's too hard because they're so yeah. young. They think they're invisible. So it's hard for them to do that. 
So um, in August when I was told that unless you get a heart transplant, the doctor, I kept on asking them, how much time do I have? And pretty much they said, um, 50% of people in your condition will live one year. Um, yeah. will, uh, will live one year. No, will live six months. And only 10% wow. will make it for one full year. So then immediately um, I went into the mode of, wow, okay, so now I need to, to activate my, my plan B, which is if I only had six months to live, what would I do? So, mm-hmm. so I went through that, and, and, and I should be sure this with you. Number one was I wanted to make sure my uh, immediate family members are saved um, about their faith. Number two is my, my sisters and my siblings, number two. And number three will be my my relatives and to spend time with them. So actually, uh, as you may know, um, within uh, one month after that, I had a one-week vacation with my own children, which is good. And then within um, two months, I had a nice uh, get-together with my three sisters' siblings. And then now, um, in one sense, I have an opportunity to kind of Kind of uh, meet up with my nephews and nieces, and and um, you know, because relationships are most important. So th- those are my plans, and then of course there's the updating the will and everything else like that. So it's so interesting because I'm executing the strategy. Now, having said that, um, um, as a Christian, I'm not afraid of dying because as a Christian, we know that there's yeah. a better life. To go to after your physical life on Earth is over with, but I've been telling him, but I'm so scared of pain and suffering. Mm-hmm. So that's my problem. Um, I'm not scared of dying, but if I were to go for a heart transplant, and not only the actual open heart surgery, but I I talked to all uh, I talked to a couple of heart transplants. The first year after you get the heart transplant, mm-hmm. it's so difficult because the body is doing everything to reject this foreign organ mm-hmm. object. So the doctors have to give you like 25 different drugs to suppress your immuno response yeah. systems. So very, very painful mm-hmm. and it's hard. So that's what I'm afraid of. But um, to answer your question, I, I told my family, and that's why it's good to meet with family. From a selfish point of view, yeah. it's fine. After I get to do all my bucket list items, the reduced yeah. list, then I'm ready to go. But of course my family will we needs me to stay as long as possible. So, uh, mm-hmm. so it's a it, it's a great question. So, for the sake of a family, I have to do everything possible to extend my life as long as possible mm-hmm. here on this earth. Yeah, yeah. What time do we have? What time is it? Oh, it's a, probably twelve o'clock. So okay. it's probably time to wrap it up. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, I guess. Uh, do you have Do you have any regrets? Oh, oh, oh! N- really, none. I mean, um, honestly, I can say um, if I had to do it over again, I would have sold my city stock <laughs> early at twenty five and fifty. That's number one. And if I had to do it over again, I would have been more involved in my children's lives earlier on rather than um, when they got into grades, uh, middle school. That's two. Mm-hmm. But you know, everything happens for a reason, really, mm-hmm. and. And the good thing is, as human beings, we always have a choice. And I just felt no matter what situation you're in, whether it's an uncomfortable situation that happens to you, like the geopolitics or the, being laid off 
or um, or switching careers. Um, you can choose to have a good attitude about it. Mm. And what's most exciting about life is after you've gone through weather the storm, if you will, you look back and you, you can really see how you became a better person mm. uh, having gone through the adversity. Because only in the adversity, mm. you kept on asking, when do you become self-aware and start to make adjustments. It's only when you have adversity or crisis yeah. do you make that. If everything's going well in your life, you're going to stay the same selfish, selfish, mm-hmm. um, arrogant self. So crisis and uh, adversity is good for you. So mm-hmm. looking back, um, I'm glad. And looking back, yeah, like I always wanted to be in California. I Life didn't turn it that way, but it's okay. Um, because there are so many benefits to having been in the East Coast, so... Yeah, so uh, that's what makes life exciting. Anybody can choose to be happy, to choose to make the most of the situation you're in. Yeah. Mm, wow. Um, no, no, definitely the attitude and perspective mm. is is really important. Yeah. But you know, a lot of that, a lot of that is determined by how you're raised, and yeah. Uh, so, um, yeah. what were, uh, what was the like the the biggest time of adversity for you? Oh, excellent question. Um, honestly, I think it's right now. Oh. <laughs> it's because, um, uh, like, during this month, I have to get myself prepared to be eligible for heart transplant. Mm-hmm. So um, I have to retake all these, like, I would say 15 different um, CT scans, X-rays, MRIs, um, mm. because I have to prove to the doctors mm. that the rest of my organs are healthy. Mm. Because, you know, to get a um, a donor, a good functioning heart donor, which unfortunately is when people di- pass away in accidents mm. or for other diseases, that you'll make the most out of it so that they don't want to give a good uh, heart mm. to somebody where your other kidneys or livers are failing, so you're, you're only yeah. going to get... A couple of years worse from this heart. So um, what's really ha- so that's why I'm going through yeah. all these medical appointments mm. and tests. Um, and, and, and I joked. So then in January next month, I have this appointment with the heart transplant doctors. Mm. They're going to interview me, mm. and after that, my current doctors will have to present to this selection committee. Literally, wow. they call it, they call it the selection committee of why I need to get a heart transplant and they prove then they place me on priority one, two, three, mm-hmm. four. There's like six different yeah. clarifications. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like yeah. trying to apply for college all over again. Yeah. So um, I feel this is my hardest challenge because of um, all these medical appointments I have to go through. A, mm-hmm. of course, the, the risks and the pain I feel too. And three, it's such an unknown, right? It's like, yeah. you know, we all want control. I have no idea whether they're going to accept me yeah. or not, right? Yeah. The unknown. And if they accept me, I'm going to be on a waiting list. Yeah. And once you're on the waiting list, you cannot travel three hours away from the hospital. It, yeah. I'm going to – right now, I'm trying yeah. to go with NYU. Yeah. So it's this uncertainty, right? So yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I would say I'm in the um, most difficult position right man. now. Yeah, yeah and, and it sounds like the other layer of why it's so difficult um, that you had alluded to earlier – is that 
you know, you want to enjoy the right. last year of your life. Right, right, right. But and and you want and you you kind of want to you know just do do what you want to do and and be done with it. But it sounds like yeah. because you love your family, yeah, you're doing you're doing it for them. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, well, I I commend you for like keep 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 fighting and to keep having hope. Yeah. And obviously we want to spend as much time with you as possible. Right. Um, and so we hope you get the heart and right. that everything works out. But really sorry to hear about all the, mm-hmm. the, the pain and the hardship that you have to go through, the uncertainty. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, but we're here with you. Thank you. And I'm just yeah, so Thank glad you. for to have you here to share your Thank story you. with us. And um, Thank you. Anyway, yeah, love you, Uncle Paul. Thanks. Thank you, thank you, thank you.